0: It's the latest chapter in the Russia
1: probe. Into the investigation into Michael Flynn. Does General Flynn, along the way, has he made the moves at least of someone who was taking steps toward cooperating? Uh, is it is the whole Russian collusion thing about to come crumbling down on Michael Flynn and this White House?
2: Michael Flynn,
1: General Flynn, is a wonderful man. I think he's been treated very, very unfairly by the media.
2: This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind.
0: And I'm Heather Cox Richardson.
2: So, Heather, I don't know what you were doing on Thanksgiving, but here I'm finishing up my turkey. And I'm saying pass the cranberry sauce and I get news on my phone that there's new evidence that Michael Flynn, Trump's former national security adviser, is probably working with special counsel. Bob Mueller, this is a huge turn. Lots of news uh, is hitting us at once, but this is in a different category. There's quite a bit more. Uh, Mueller investigating senior aide and son-in-law Jared Kushner and his interactions with foreign leaders during the presidential transition. Uh, Mueller is closing in this is this is a model of prosecution that is familiar to anyone who has watched prosecutors do their job but but the key actor michael flynn i mean he is at the very top of this pyramid there's really no one above him except trump he is the senior man in the campaign and he's the national security advisor to start the administration. He's the guy who had the most contacts leading into Trump's emergence as a candidate with the Russians. And suddenly, he could be the man who turns. If, in fact, and it's not absolutely nailed down yet, I mean, there's an enormous suggestion that, in fact, that is the case, that Mueller has turned Flynn, turned him, meaning he is now cooperating. He is cutting deals. He's saying, what do you need to know to save me from what you have already arrayed as potential prosecution? If that is the case, we may have just moved to a latter chapter of what is a successful prosecution and I guess the question then becomes are we moving finally now as we approach Christmas (laughs) to the constitutional crisis that many many people have been predicting almost since the first minutes of this Trump administration.
0: Well you know Ron I think that you and I are actually on the same page on this one and that is The way I look at what's going on right now is I do think we are approaching a crisis, and it is the crisis. And one of the things that, you know, I do is to look at the broad landscape of American politics and of American history and try and look for all the moving pieces. And the things that has really jumped out at me in this last week is that in the past, what has been happening with the Russia investigation has almost seemed to live on its own, off on the side. But right now, this week starting yesterday. Um, or perhaps starting, as you say, on Thanksgiving when we first started to get the inklings that Mike Flynn was in Mueller's crosshairs, but also starting with Trump's tweets over the weekend when he's talked about Russia, Russia, Russia was an attempt of the Democrats to deflect the fact they lost the election and that allies sometimes turned. There were lots of things that suggested that he was very nervous about the Mueller investigation. But at the same time beginning this week, we got a lot of other indications that Trump's fears about russia are so extreme that he's coming down on american democracy in particularly pointed ways that suggest to me that this is the crisis in which americans really are going to have to choose soon between either democracy or the kind of Trump vision of the government that many of us, most of us, think is not an American vision. And this, quite frankly, terrifies me. And I have not been the freak out person on this show yet. But this is my week to freak out.
2: Uh, Well, I may freak out a little bit with you. Uh, You know, I feel uh, a ticking clock for the first time uh, when you start to see the steps that then move uh, to a moment in which the fundamental issues of rule of law will be challenged. There's no doubt that that is right in the mix of what Trump is thinking. Great time to bring our guest aboard, Brian Class, author of The Despot's Apprentice. Nice title, Brian. Trump's Attack on Democracy. He's a fellow at the London School of Economics. He's very, very active out there on Twitter and all sorts of social media and a very smart guy. Brian, welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay, Brian, why don't you do a bit of uh, when last we spoke on this for folks who have not been following things since the last high water mark or whale breaking the water line, which is the indictments of former campaign manager Paul Manafort and former campaign aides Rick Gates and George Papadopoulos, news that made the public snap around at the end of October. And, and those seem to be the moments where I said, okay, now I see it, but now we are at a next step. What's happened between now and then? And what does this mean?
1: Well, it's a major development because there's a few things that are different about Flynn from the other people who've been involved in the investigation. One that's really important is that Flynn became part of Trump's administration. So he was his national security advisor for 24 days in January. The other thing that's really important here is that the allegations against Flynn are extremely serious and extremely illegal. So the Wall Street Journal has reported that one of the allegations is that Flynn, as an unregistered foreign agent, which we know that was true, he definitely was an unregistered foreign agent in the time running up to being national security advisor, which is in itself a problem. He also was allegedly in communication with the Turkish government trying to arrange a quid pro quo in which he may receive up to $15 million to arrange for the kidnapping of Gulen, a a person who is very much in the ire of the Turkish government and sort of the arch nemesis of President Erdogan in Turkey, a despot in Turkey. That accusation has extreme criminal liability associated with it. And also, the more general accusations against Flynn relate to his work with the Flynn Intel Group, his private consulting firm in which he basically sold influence. And his son was involved in that. So now you have a situation in which Mueller is able to create criminal liability and exposure, not just for Flynn, but also for somebody very important to Flynn. And that means that he may be in a situation where he has to choose between himself, his son and Donald Trump. And that's where the the alarm bells should really be going off in the Trump administration. And there's also a deep irony to it because Flynn was the guy who last summer led chants of lock her up. We do not need a reckless president who believes she is above the law.
0: Lock her up. That's right. Yes, that's right. Lock her up.
1: And now he is facing the very real prospect of being locked up unless he ends up being a cooperating witness against the president of the United States.
2: And you may actually have a situation where you've got Flynn deciding what happens or not with his son while Trump decides what happens or not with his son-in-law. Maybe blood versus marriage will be an issue here.
0: Brian, can I go back and ask you a question on this, though? You've set up, you know, the fact that Flynn and the locker up thing is always is great because, you know, this administration is famous for its projection. But what you've done here is you've set up the charges against Flynn. But explain to us how those implicate or might implicate at this point, the only person above Flynn is Donald Trump and why there's a situation where Trump needs to be worried that Flynn might flip on him.
1: Great question. So there's sort of two angles to this. One is that Flynn would have known what the campaign was up to because he was a senior surrogate and he was also aware of national security matters uh, during the administration. So if there was any sort of discussions about a quid pro quo about releasing Russian sanctions, Flynn would know about them. But the second aspect, which may be almost more problematic, is that remember that when Trump famously talked to James Comey Shortly after taking office, Comey later testified that he said, I hope you can find a way to let this matter go. In other words, he told Comey to stop investigating Flynn, an assumption that gets much more serious when you realize how severe the allegations against Flynn were. Because that would be Trump trying to shut down a Department of Justice investigation and an FBI investigation into an alleged plot to get paid millions of dollars to kidnap somebody on American soil, which is a severe crime. Draw
2: a bright line for us, Brian, as to why it is illegal during the campaign to be consorting with a foreign government in particular ways in the fashion alleged in this instance.
1: So there are multiple layers of criminal liability and exposure here. The, the simplest one that is almost certainly Flynn is guilty of is non disclosure. So if you're in any way a foreign agent and you're requested to disclose contacts or ties or money you receive, you're required to do that, and Flynn did not. Uh, and beyond that, you also have the fact that simply a kidnapping plot, whether you're involved in politics or not, is illegal. But it's also just out of bounds in democratic practice, right? I mean, you just couldn't make up this idea that you've, you've put somebody who is a compromised, unregistered foreign agent as the head of the National Security Council. I mean, it's just an absurd thing to have happened. There are so many layers at which this story should be disqualifying. And that's before you even get into the criminal liability, of which there is is much.
0: So I want to get into that because you've written some great stuff on that lately. But can you go back and follow the other half of Ron's question? And that was, you've talked now about why collusion is not a good thing. Isn't there also the problem of a cover-up or of obstruction of justice?
1: I mean, I think the astonishing thing about this entire saga is that we, when we think about scandals in American history, like Watergate, it seems more insidious to us when things are done in secret, when, when they're sort of done out of the eye of the public. But there's so many things that Trump has done in public view that should be disqualified. I mean, you go back to the campaign last year where he specifically invited Russia to hack Hillary Clinton's emails on TV. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. But more to the point of the obstruction question, he specifically told Lester Holt in a a televised interview that the reason he fired James Comey was because of the Russia investigation. And, in fact,
2: when I decided to just do it, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse.
1: And, you know, in, in my work where I study authoritarian regimes, a very close parallel actually exists in Turkey, the country that Michael Flynn was working for, where President Erdogan was facing a corruption investigation, so he fired four prosecutors and started purging people in the in, in the justice system and lo and behold, the justice investigation went away. And that's exactly why we can't allow this to become normal because it creates an impunity within democracy for people who are in positions of power. What I'm seeing that I'm really worried about is this idea that rule of law is heavily politicized under the Trump administration. And that if that happens and we allow it to continue, is not the type of thing that goes away when Trump leaves office. That's the type of thing that takes years or decades to repair.
0: Most of the things that are coming out of the Trump administration would be administration-defining events for any other moment in American history. And here sometimes we're hit with three and four of them in a day. But that raises another question for me that I, I wonder about as I look around, and that is that when we say things like the national security advisor was a paid foreign agent, that the Russians were actively hacking our democracy, that that includes, at this point, the president, members of the White House, including the president's family, probably the vice president, members of Congress. I mean, at some point, this seems to me to be so enormous an attack on American democracy. It's simply impossible for people to get their heads around. It seems like a tinfoil hat conspiracy, kind of like, you know, the sex ring out of the bottom of the pizza parlor. Is is this a legitimate concern about the way we're reacting to this?
1: Things that used to shock us don't shock us. I think most people probably remember the first time Trump called the news fake or the first time he called them the enemy of the people or how outraged they were when Ivanka Trump was appointed as a senior advisor, even though she's unqualified, or when he started to demonize minorities, or when he tried to say to jail his opponent or pardon Joe Arpaio. The list goes on and on and on. And one of the things that I've thought about a lot is how liberal democracy, one of the things it gives citizens is the ability to not pay attention to politics which is totally different from authoritarian regimes where both you're so precarious and the, the the sort of regime wants you to always be thinking about it. And that's what we've lost. You can't go a day without thinking about politics because Trump outrages us. But the cost of that is that the guardrails of democracy require us to be shocked when they're violated. And now it's a daily occurrence. So, you know, the, the democratic norms that are sort of the glue or the, or the guardrails that keep the system intact and, and operating... Those being violated on a daily basis mean that they're losing their meaning. I'm extremely worried about the long term damage, not just because of what Trump is doing, but of how he's corroding the system and how about a third of Americans are not just okay with this, but are cheering this type of authoritarian-esque behavior and, and, and expecting it. Of the leader.
0: Okay, so I'm with you. I'm I'm very concerned as well. But let me try and be the devil's advocate here and suggest that, you know, America's certainly been in situations like this before. Look at the the nineteen teens and World War I when we were actively purging Germans from American society and actively, quite actively lynching African Americans and Mexican Americans, and quite literally hunting Mexican Americans and Indians in the West. It seemed then in many ways like, you know, the, that America would never regain its footing again, and yet it did. Is it unrealistic to think that we could get out of this? And if so, is there something that regular citizens can do to retain their, their understanding of what a liberal democracy is supposed to look like?
1: The optimism you're so, you're so <laughs> rightly looking for is in the scenario I call the Trump vaccine. In other words, he's so ineffectual and so impulsive and, you know, reckless that he may end up creating enough of a backlash to him that the system shores itself up before he can completely corrode it. And that's the optimistic scenario that requires citizens to band together across party lines and to say that, look, we disagree on taxes, we disagree on health care, but we agree on the value of the press. We agree on the value of democratic ethics. And if that happens, then there actually is a positive outcome where you could have greater civic engagement, a call for more civic education, higher voter turnout, et cetera. And I I think that's really the way that you save American democracy from Trump is it's not, there's not rocket science. It's just getting involved and that Democrats and Republicans can find common ground on stuff that Trump is violating in total opposition to norms on both sides of the aisle. Right. I mean, John yeah, but, McCain, uh, uh,
2: so go, go ahead. No, no. I mean, Brian, you know, look, I mean, I, I hear you. And of course we're all looking for that, that pathway to sunlight that people will respond and react. But, but precisely what we've all been watching over the last year is the opposite is a numbness, uh, a shock after shock that is drawing less and less response from people I mean, look, we live contextualized by a moment in this era, the moment we're sitting in, and all of a sudden, that moment has us moving well down a path, even though our legs are not moving. It's like we're on one of those moving sidewalks of the airport. That's what I fear at this point, because if you just carry forward these progressions that we have actually seen operative over this past year where people are not shocked, they are not outraged. In fact, you need more and more to shock them. I don't see right now a kind of moment in which wise men and women come together across party lines, put aside the powerful will to power that frankly drives most of us and certainly our politics and much of the disasters, if you will, the 20th and now 21st centuries, to table that in favor of a restoration of the sort that we're all hoping for.
1: Well, I agree with you. Uh, and I was trying to sort of flirt with optimism in the hope of being a bit more optimistic than I normally am. But but the, the, the other and three Brian, scenarios—
2: Brian, do you have a significant other?
1: Uh, yes, I do.
2: Okay. Uh, well, I, I do my wife, and she's always saying, just try to be more hopeful— <laughs> because I just can't take it. We can't have cause discussions at dinner if this is going to keep up. And I'd say I say, I can't, I can't unless there's some facts to support it. But the fact is, is that is that we are desperately searching. For those facts in unison, you are, I am, Heather is. There are many people out there who are looking
0: for them. But let's just say that Mueller gets it, that he, he in fact did get Flynn to flip. And my guess is he's got much more information than we can even begin to guess. And he puts together what he is famous for, an airtight case that implicates not only the president but all of his minions, what Ron has called the mob rule there in the White House. And he's got him dead to rights. And Trump just says, no. And Congress, the House and the Senate say, we don't care. I mean, is it possible that at that point, the American people simply do what it seems that the president is setting them up to do, say, oh, this is fake news. This is a setup by some deep state of Obama holdovers. And this doesn't matter to us. We'd rather go down the road of authoritarianism so long as it means we can can hurt our enemies.
1: Yeah. And that's a very scary scenario you, you lay out. So, and you know, I think the problem is that there is a very realistic possibility where Mueller has to speak in probabilities, where he doesn't necessarily have a smoking gun tape, but produces a report of the type that many times you see from the government of, we have high confidence that there was a, a high probability of collusion with the Russian government or illegal activity. That is possible that there, that, that could be as far as they get with Trump. And if that happens, then the situation becomes much more problematic because we have seen time and time again Republicans in Congress who have professed certain values or principles related to democracy rolling over on those upon fear of retaliation from their base. And that is something that is a realistic possibility. It scares me. But. You know, one of the things that I think we always have to keep in mind with this is Richard Nixon was saying up until five days before he resigned that he was not a target of the investigation. Then the smoking gun tape came out and no one had heard of it before. So that totally changes things if there actually is a gotcha moment for Trump. If there's not, then the constitutional crisis comes much more real because it is almost certain that something nefarious has happened. Uh, the, 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 the sort of innocent explanation days, I think, are long gone. And so the idea that Trump would have no knowledge of this whatsoever when his son, his son-in-law, his campaign manager, his national security advisor are potentially aware of these things, I think that the odds of that are vanishingly small if not zero.
2: I think uh, that's a very trenchant point, uh, Brian, as to the establishment. There are times when I've sit among them. I was in Washington for 20 years as a reporter. And, of course, they do have great confidence that checks and balances are working, Ron. Yes, look, the courts have held up and Congress is ostensibly doing its job. And, and I say, you know, I feel like I'm in one of those little Polynesian villages that look up and say, oh, my, is that a 100-foot tidal wave or 150? <laughs> um, so, look, Brian, uh, it has been uh, great having you on the show.
1: Thank you very much
2: for having me. Brian Class, author of The Despot's Apprentice, Donald Trump's Attack on Democracy. Heather, stand by. We'll be right back and talk about Trump's attempted takeover of a government agency.
0: All right, we're back. Ron, let me just start right here and say, every once in a while, I step back and I think of the two of us sitting here doing this podcast, and I think, where did this come from? Why are we here? How did America get to this place where we are literally talking about the breakdown of the rule of law? It just blows me away every once in a while. But I was going back uh, to, to what Brian was talking about and the idea of the pressure of the Mueller investigation on Trump and how he is cutting back on democracy domestically in America. And it made me think about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which seems to me to be a really big deal. I know you know a lot about that. Why don't you walk us through that?
2: So, this oddly named Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is an agency formed after the financial crash in 2008 to basically protect consumers against the predations and chicanery of financial institutions. It's a signature agency that's been very controversial. The Republicans have been trying to kill it for years. And over the weekend, there was a controversy that brewed up where the director of the agency left and appointed his deputy to be the acting head of the agency. At the same time, The Trump administration, right on top of that, appointed the head of the Office of Management and Budget, Mick Mulvaney, to be the acting director. So all of a sudden, these two people collided on Monday morning, Leandra English, the acting deputy director, and Mick Mulvaney, uh, the OMB chief, who's now taking on the second hat, ultimately Mulvaney enters the office, takes the chair, it goes to a judge, and the judge then does rule, a judge appointed by Trump, uh, that uh, Trump and Mulvaney are in the right. I think this is going to continue to be a controversy going forward. Uh, The drama will unfold, but beneath it is a bigger battle over principles
0: why why should anybody care about this though
2: well because this agency is unique in in the array of many agencies in Washington it was formed after the financial crash and it was formed in a way that we haven't seen an agency come into into form in 30 or 40 years. It's like an old style agency from before Ronald Reagan. You know, Reagan undercut a lot of the bureaucracy in America, he said government's the problem. He put people in charge of agencies who wanted to shut the agencies down. That's not the way it worked, pretty much from FDR to Ronald Reagan. The folks who headed regulatory agencies were folks you didn't want to get into a run-in with. They had real power. They they were there protecting the rights of citizens, of consumers. That was the way this agency was designed, which is why from its inception in 2008, in the wake of the financial crisis and crash, the great bubble bust that caused the recession, this agency has been in the crosshairs of the way of doing business that's taken hold in Washington in the years since. So that means everyone on Wall Street says, how can I take this agency down? Because they've got real power.
0: It does point toward a constitutional crisis. And let me suggest why. And that's that we have, in fact in American history, had two people show up for the same job on the same day before. And it did not go well. It Do was in, tell. Do tell. It was in 1868 when Andrew Johnson appointed Lorenzo Thomas, who was a completely unremarkable man, to replace Edwin Stanton, who was the Secretary of War. And Lorenzo Thomas was so thrilled at the fact he had leaped to this era of prominence that he went out drinking the night before and he showed up at the door of the Secretary of War and he couldn't open it because Edwin Stanton, who was working with the Republicans in Congress, had actually barricaded himself into the department. And this precipitates a crisis between the president and the Congress, because Congress says you cannot fire Edwin Stanton. And Andrew Johnson says, watch me. And this is the grounds on which the House of Representatives impeaches Andrew Johnson And then it goes to the Senate for a trial, as impeachments do. And the Senate exonerates, or at least finds, President Johnson not guilty. And when I saw this Consumer Financial Protection Bureau thing, I actually could not look away. I sat in my car for almost two hours reading the news and reading reactions to it because I said, wow, I'm watching Edwin Stanton barricade himself into the War Department.
2: And that's really the crisis that I think we find ourselves in at this point. Heather, uh, thank you for all your powerful insights today, as always.
0: It's always good to chat, Ron.
2: I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. Thanks for listening.
0: If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show.
2: Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is on at wbur.org. Our
0: show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Katherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.